Welcome to episode 409 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, uh, our clients, our friends, family, or even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, we're, good, we're glad to have Matthew Hyman back, a senior fellow at the National Security Institute. We got Paul Rosenzweig back, founder of Red Branch Consulting. And we got Sultan Meiji back, who's a scholar in the Cyber Policy Initiative at the uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. All of you guys have been away for various periods of time, and it's great to have you all back. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. I want to jump right in uh, because we now finally have an appellate decision about some of the state laws trying to regulate content moderation. Uh, Florida's uh, law came in for, I I would say, a 98% beatdown from the 11th Circuit. Paul, what did they do to Florida's law? Well, I mean, it's a fascinating decision on a number of levels. I think first, because it's pretty nuanced. It was 98, not 100%. Second, because the judge who wrote it, Judge Newsom, is is a, a conservative Federalist Society hero, pretty much. So procedurally, this was a, as good a panel as, as Governor DeSantis might have gotten, and he lost. Yeah, well, and Judge Joe Flat, if it's the same guy, he was writing uh, appellate decisions when I was a law clerk, which is How a long time ago. How many judges be? I, yeah. I, when I was a clerk on the 11th Circuit, Judge Joe Flat was the chief judge. He's been around a long time. He's a, I think, a Ford appointee. The yeah. last board appointee around. So anyway, here's what happened. For starters, they did uphold some of Florida's law. They did agree that some of Florida's disclosure requirements, for example, the one that required you to allow users to see the view counts for their posts or and gave suspended users access to their data were permissible. But by and large, the big pieces went totally south. Most importantly, the court at first rejected a provision that would have required the platforms to articulate to users what their reasoning was for suppressing any given post. So they rejected basically algorithmic transparency requirements. That and was a there, surprise to me. And, and, I, and their, their basic analogy was, uh, look, these are decisions. These are First Amendment protected decisions. You know, if you want to censor right. somebody, that's your First Amendment right if it's your platform. And if you put too much of a burden on people, if they actually have to explain why they wanted to censor you, you're really detracting from their First Amendment right. Well, certainly in, in platforms at scale, it would be almost impossible to do. But I think even more interesting and in following up on what you said was one of the provisions of the law would, for example, have allowed users to opt out of algorithms altogether and see their timeline in chronological order. And there they went even further in advancing the First Amendment rights of platforms and said that was kind of, well, th this is my analogy, kind of like telling a bookstore what they could put in the front case and what they had to put in the back, and instead telling them that they had to put it all in chronological order, you know, from the date of publication or the date they got it. It was, so basically the conservative feared shadow banning, which, yeah, we can discuss how often that actually occurs, but whatever it is, it's perfectly legal huh? uh, under the 11th Circuit's provision. So, so this is where I, well, I got off the bus earlier than this, but this is really where I would have gotten off the bus because I thought that this opinion, while it was, you know, certainly respectable, gave almost no weight to the First Amendment rights of other participants on these uh, uh, platforms. And this is probably the best example. That, I mean, you know, we've had this discussion before. They have no First Amendment right to Okay, so the free speech rights. Platform. Fine, let's talk about free expression rights rather than First Amendment rights. They have but, no uh, free expression rights. I'm sorry, I, 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 dis I, I disagree. Business. This is, know, this I can exclude anybody if it's not being excluded for... Uh, an invidious reason like race or gender discrimination? It isn't discrimination. I'm sorry. I, 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 I completely disagree with you I on know that. You do, but, uh, I, but and, 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 and you're, you're, you're just so you're saying it. You're you. saying it that it doesn't make it so. Saying it it's, I, it's, it's, it's it's my right to do it is is just saying I would like that to be my right to do it. But if you ask the question, what are the social values here? You have 
people who've said, I want to get this stuff. And you've got people who say, I want to communicate this stuff. And you've so got a platform in the middle. In the, the truth. The, 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 what is it, truth or whatever? But, but, the, sure, know, you, truth, there's truth no social. Barriers to entry. No, you're, there are barriers to entry. Right the, the, to get the, it. So I'm sorry. You have a right to get it on Facebook's platform or Yahoo's platform or Twitter's platform. You don't get to tell the private sector what they have to sell to you. So I'm right? sorry. I, first, I, the Supreme Court has, in cases where this has been a, a factor in legislation, acknowledged that the free expression rights of participants other than the people who are controlling the forum are a, an important uh, factor in deciding whether the restriction that the government has imposed is reasonable or not. And in this case, where you have people who say, I'm a user and I want it, and, and you say, I'm a speaker and I want to communicate it, and somebody in the middle who says, yeah, but I got here first, I have all the network effects, screw you, it's my no, uh, First Amendment right. To, I, just to suppress believe, I just don't believe that the network effects is a reason to override their First Amendment rights. They won the game. You know, Donald Trump can set up his own network if he wants to. So can the conservatives. No, but they you know that won't work. You, you right? know that won't work. Right? That, that, right. The, yes, you, you acknowledge network, network effects are, are what real. What they want to do is force Facebook to treat them. I mean, first off, I you know, don't. You, they want to force them. Of course, it will work if they wanted it to. They just don't. Try hard enough. Donald Trump was off the network for what two years, three years before he finally said, "Okay, I'll go on." Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry it, 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 to, to say you should just try harder to compete with Facebook and it would work is preposterous. Well, uh, you know, what you're saying that uh, you should try harder to compete with GM or Ford? It yeah, exactly. And if, and if GM said that you can you cannot ride in my cars and vote for uh, Donald Trump, uh, I would say there's something wrong with uh, I would uh, GM's. Say GM does not position. have to sell cars to Trump voters. If they I, I, actually, that's probably true. But they they, they, they also do not have a dominant position in the they, same way. Of course they do. I mean, that, that's a. Are you kidding? They have like a thirty-two percent accommodation. They, if I want to run a restaurant that doesn't allow uh, Biden voters in. I don't have to. Yeah, I can ask them to check their thing at the door. This is what conservatives have always thought about, you know, private enterprise, that we get to control what we want to sell. You're, you've become yeah. a Yeah, so I, 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 I really do disagree because I think you're basically saying, so then there are 10 really rich people and the employees that, that work for them who get to decide what we can say to our families, for God, the pronouns we're allowed to use. I, now, that's uh, that's an astonishing... Your family's on Facebook. Yes. Right? If that becomes the way... I mean, there are a million other ways to communicate to your family, Stuart. I, not... <laughs> no, I, works. Text works. Yes. Email. I, on the other hand, they have created a circumstance the dialogue occurs on their platform, and they have become dominant in allowing that dialogue. And then they've decided, we want to actually shape what people can say. I yeah, do I mean, not... Cons- I mean, first off, they don't have to have that. And more importantly, the entire factual premise is wrong. Because, of course, the major tweets that are trending most on Facebook are Dan Boingo, Jake Probasek. So basically, you're trying to force... Um, private sector actors to do something you want on a false factual premise and a false legal premise. I, I don't think Except it's a false factual premise. You're, you're basically saying because conservatives actually still get their message through. Uh, because but, conservatives still get their message uh, through. Uh, There's no evidence that they're being banned. That's like, that's like saying, well, if, you know, the, no the, 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 left, factually, the, the left gets the motorcycles and you can, and you can crawl. Through. If the left gets motorcycles and you can crawl and you still arrive at the finish oh, line at some point, what's your complaint? The prominent people on the network are conservative commentators. The idea that anybody who's conservative other than Donald Trump himself is being banned is nonsensical. Well, what do we do? Instagram just banned the libs of yes, t- TikTok. Yes, advocating violence against trans people. Where t- are you kidding? The only allegation of uh, that they're advocating violence comes from Taylor Lorenz, who basically said, I've been abused and they're being abused too. It's terrible. But this is just saying because people respond to what left-wingers say on TikTok when it's circulated more broadly with 
you know, some of the people, anybody who doesn't like what you say is going to approve of protests in front of uh, Supreme Court justice. No, I, I, I don't. I, I look, I, 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 except there's not not one indication. There, TikTok are there is, more effective in actually creating threats of violence. Yeah. So, but, so but I'm no, sorry. No. What you're now saying is, if you criticize somebody effectively, no, no, and said, other people, no, sorry. So, we don't, give, give, give me a chance. Violent in front of them. That's not what libtards of TikTok is doing, Stuart. Well, I'm sorry. Criticizing. They are. They are mocking and holding up. Uh, uh, no, uh, no, Stuart. Right. I'm sorry. I, I, I am mocking you now. Okay. Somewhat. If I said Stuart Baker lives at and gave your address and said, if you think Stuart's wrong, you ought to go to his place and let him know, that would be different. Okay. You show me where the libs of TikTok said that. What happens with everybody who's Twitter mobbed, whether they're from the left or the right, is once you get Twitter mobbed, people start looking for ways to abuse you. They dox you. They send you hate speech. But to say you can't criticize people because that is going to be the consequence of criticizing them is to mistake who's doing the actions and to try to tar one side of the debate with threats of violence and on the other to say, oh, well, it's mostly peaceful speech. Yeah, that's not how it works, Stuart. <laughs> okay, I think we have more or less beaten this to death. Um, well, there's one point that's worth making, though, okay. which is that the 11th Circuit opinion is in real tension with the 5th Circuit's failure to decision not to stay the Texas court. Yes, it is. Uh, I agree. Uh, the Texas law that is very similar. And the emergency petition to lift that stay has been pending in the Supreme Court for about two weeks now, which uh, that's is right. really a radically long time for an emergency petition with respect to a state to be sitting in the court, whether they're going to grant or deny. So clearly there's a tension going on in the Supreme Court over what to do with the Texas law that will be exacerbated, I think, by the 11th Circuit's decision, because it will obviously empower those who think the state should be lifted and be a challenge for those who think that the state was righteous. And depending upon what happens to that stay, it may or may not increase the chances that the Supreme Court will weigh in and resolve this. And we know for sure, notwithstanding what the conservative credentials of Mr. Newsom, that at least Justice Thomas is much more in the Stuart Baker camp yes. of analysis, however wrong that may be. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll find uh, out. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, you're right. I, I suspect strongly that there aren't five votes for the Baker analysis in the Supreme Court. And that what's happening in the Supreme Court now is that Thomas is writing a dissent that it may be. No, I, 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 I bet you money on that one. Uh, he may be writing a dissent, but they're not going to hold this decision for very long. So somebody can dissent. I mean, they won't. They've hold it two weeks. But yes, they often hold their their emergency petitions for somebody to write. But well, right, not if they're going to grant it, because this is an emergency. I, I, I don't think it's going to be granted. There is only one appellate decision on this question. And the Fifth Circuit is going to give us another one, and it's probably going to go in the other direction. And so there may be people making the argument, well, we are going to grant if they do what we expect. And so we should stay the decision so that we can grant. But the argument that they should grant a stay at this point is pretty modest. They, they don't well, even well, know what they're what reviewing. The Fifth Circuit granted the stay. I think the Supreme Court. I'm sorry. Be- so this is an emergency stay of the stay. Uh, uh, an emergency application to vacate the stay. Right. I, I think they they may grant it, and I think Thomas is dissenting from that. I I very doubtful about that because to vacate the stay would be to say we think we need to review this case, and it's very premature to make that decision. But uh, it's, it's, I think it's simply to say that it implicates First Amendment rights, and we don't do pre enforcement stay pre speech stays. I, I don't know. It'll be an interesting question. But okay, they, I, I, we, we, we'll, we'll bring you back, and one of us will apologize to the other for having gotten this so wrong. <laughs> All right. Uh, one participant on the web who apparently isn't really bothered by Silicon Valley censorship is China, as it tries to deliver its message that there's nothing to see in Xinjiang. Just move along. And if you're worried about where uh, COVID came from, you should be looking at Fort Detrick, Maryland. It is a 
very interesting study out from Brookings. They did a review of how often the Chinese government gets its narrative into the front page of Google search results. And it's very surprising. The actual search engines, they're not so successful, but they still get there 5-10% of the time with their story about Xinjiang, for example. But where they're really good at getting their story onto the front page is in news search, where the Chinese law makes it on about 20% of the time, 25% of the time, and YouTube, where 25% of the search results on those topics show up basically touting a Chinese line. And it's not completely clear how they do it. It, it probably, uh, the things that are most effective are they do a lot of refreshing so they keep producing slightly different stories during the day, and that is highly valued by news search algorithms. They have developed a lot of sources in the West that are not avowed republishers of Chinese propaganda, but who are unavowed republishers of Chinese propaganda, and those sources get picked up quite a bit and are not apparently being treated as inauthentic or discredited sources. Uh, so not clear what the answer to this is. Obviously, the algorithms are having an effect and the Chinese are working them effectively. I think YouTube, as with everything, YouTube seems to be kind of a little clueless and easily manipulated. Their search engine and their algorithmic recommendations have always been a little dubious and they're dubious here as well. Across the board, Google does much worse than, or at least worse than Bing at spotting and downgrading Chinese propaganda. Not clear what we, what should be done about this, um, but uh, they're so busy uh, suppressing the libs of TikTok that I think they've taken their eye off this ball. All right. Well, while we're uh, causing controversy, I wanted to go back to the Terra USD crash. I was kind of struck by the fact that billions and billions of dollars and all this backup, these various algorithmic backups that were supposed to keep the stable coin stable, more or less failed. All of that money was wiped out. And it was a little hard to find people who would admit to having lost a lot of money. We're starting to see some of those stories, Sultan, and I'm still struck by the fact that the people who are admitting to losing money are what you might call retail customers who came in just because they saw the ad on the Super Bowl. And we're not hearing a lot about big players in the cryptocurrency ecosystem who really took a bath. Well, I think you've got a couple of different things. And, and for those who don't follow crypto or Web3 on a daily basis, I'll just say that as someone who just joined a crypto VC, I want to start by saying, let's focus on defining what a stable coin is, because Tether, Luna, these were not actually stable coins. A reasonable definition is of a stable coin is that it's pegged directly to a fiat currency. So one unit of a stable coin should be equal to a dollar or a euro or whatever. So really it is. And that you have, you presumably you have enough dollars to back that up if, and, if somebody comes calling. And that is exactly what the regulatory community is currently going on. You know, the news of March that's starting to impact the story is the staff accounting bulletin 121 from the SEC that, that basically says you need more than a dollar. You, in mm -hmm. some cases, might need two dollars for every dollar of stable coin you have. So, so that's kind of part one. Part two is, you know, to your comment about some of the bigger players, you know, let's remember that, you know, something like 70% of all crypto assets and are held in under 200 different logical wallets, right? So it is a fairly centralized, even though that community does still, you know, talk a lot about decentralization. And the big holders of a Tether or a Luna are also big holders of a Bitcoin or an Ethereum. And so if you put it in that context, a lot of these guys don't want to shock the system anymore. And if you know someone who is conceivably worth 50 or $100 billion in crypto says, well, I just lost two of that in Tether or Luna, that becomes a confidence issue, right? Um, the, oh, so the, people are, are just not talking about their losses. Yeah, they just, and you know, 
everybody has, you know, 350 different wallets and all their decentralized mechanisms to keep everything hidden. So you can't really tell if it's four guys that accounted for 2 billion or 40 or 4,000, right? And and the, the community is incredibly robust in terms of occulting who actually owns it in some cases, right? So, so that's a whole other piece of this discussion. I, I would also add that just one other point is, you know, anytime you abdicate decision-making authority to an algorithm, and we're going to come back and talk about this later on in the podcast, I think, you are fundamentally opening yourself up without robust governance mechanisms to issues like this. We saw flash crashes. We've seen runs on banks in our history. And these are all fundamentally emotional moments where some degree of automation took took control over this. And so, you know, we allowed real-time algorithmic trading on the New York Stock Exchange before the year 2000. And then we saw, you know, a decade or so later, the first flash crash, and we've seen other things like that. And then governance mechanisms are built around that to stop that from happening. In a decentralized, unregulated environment like this, you know, we go from zero to, you know, the equivalent of a flash crash in a far shorter amount of time. And this is one of the reasons why you've seen such an increase in, in volume of, of actual activity around the regulatory community in DC, because they realize that, you know, if the crypto ecosystem is worth about $2 trillion, which by the way, is the same amount that was in the, the, the Fed account, buyback uh, account last week. And it's also about the same size as the entire credit union depository base of the United States. You know, you're talking you know, it's now real money. And mm-hmm. so now the regulatory community realizes they have to do something. And the problem is, is there's a big conflict between the legislative and executive branches over whether or not the existing executive branch authorities actually allow them to regulate this. You know, you talk to especially Republican uh, Senate and House members, and it's very clear. I, mean, I was over there last week and they're just like, no, we don't think the statutory authority exists for SEC OCC, Fed, Treasury, whomever, to actually regulate all of this. But why, what, what's the downside to the SEC and the other regulatory agencies just saying, well, we, and, and because either they're right and they win in court, yeah. or they're wrong and they take the loss back to the Hill and say, please give us the authority that we thought we had. Uh, well, that's, that's exactly what they're doing. And that's what, you know, Gensler and, you know, Sue and Gruenberg and the others are all doing is they're fundamentally going off of that. Now, the interesting thing is there is only one financial regulatory body in the United States that has a kind of a vaguely defined uh, regulatory remit, and that's the FDIC. And I have to, you know, give a little prop because I used to work there. The regulatory basis for the FDIC says that it has the authority to manage the money and its equivalencies across the financial system of the United States. Full stop. Mm-hmm. It's some sentence like that from 1930. And I'm, you know, as, the, as, as a not lawyer, I would leave it to other lawyers to, to decompose that a little bit. But the fact is the FDIC could simply say, we believe this falls under our remit under this thing and could make that case. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you know, Marty Grunberg, the acting chair over there, could absolutely do that. Um, assuming the internal legal team would let him. Yes, and uh, assuming all his regulatory competitors, who probably don't hold uh, him in as high a regard as themselves, would allow it. Well, I think, you know, the, the politics of that are probably worth an entire other podcast. But uh-huh. I would say that the only Senate-confirmed member of the FDIC leadership team is not. It uh-huh. is Rohit Chopra from CFPB, who that's probably worth a whole other discussion. <laughs> wow. So. Okay. Well, so I, I and I will say for folks who are disappointed uh, not to have Nick Weaver explain what's wrong with cryptocurrency, I would highly recommend because it is like it, it's it outweavers anything Weaver has ever said on this podcast. He has an interview in uh, Current Affairs that is just it just uh, slashing attack on every aspect of cryptocurrency. And I can't imagine someone could have done it better. I, so whether he's right. We've got to get a Carter. debate between Sultan and Nick going Yeah, on we here. should do that. I mean, you know what's going to be so fun is there's going to be 70% of things he and I agree on and 30% we don't. And the 30% we don't, I'm going to win. So it's great. This is how I feel about Paul. Uh, <laughs> we mostly agree. And then we've got these other places where, where Paul's so wrong. The Cyber Law Podcast self-selects for people who disagree, but who are pretty confident that they're still going to win. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about regulating AI. As usual, the U.S. is not doing it and the EU is. But China got in there first with some uh, at least 
I, I won't call it comprehensive AI regulation, but algorithmic recommendation engines, at least. Matthew, where do we see regulation outside the U.S. going on AI? Well, it seems to be going, if we look at China and the EU's examples, it's following slightly different paths. So China's taking a at least to date, a fairly targeted approach, as you mentioned, Stuart. They're focused on, at least based on their latest regs, algorithm usage and basically mandating that companies must inform users if the algorithm's targeting them. And it gives users the opportunity to opt out of being targeted. And so that's what China has done so far. The EU is taking a very comprehensive approach where they're trying to manage all AI regulation under these broad framework where they've got multiple levels of risk. And it's sort of a boil the ocean approach as far as I can tell, which is in keeping with the EU style. Right. Plus, um, plus, plus, plus I think their, their principle is we're boiling the ocean here. When we're done, you can deploy your AI. Right. Right. Exactly. And and I think China is taking a, you know, a much more targeted approach. And to be fair to each regime, China has the advantage of not being a democracy, not having any real checks and balances. So whatever a couple of apparatchiks dream up and get the okay on, that's what becomes the law in China versus the European Union, which arguably is not a democracy either, but it takes a much more uh, slow process to get most anything done. But I think what's interesting about both, Stuart, and I think this is where you were kind of tipping your hand maybe at the beginning of introducing this topic, is I I think it's interesting the U.S. has done almost nothing in this space. The EU is trying to do something in this space, and China has already done something in this space. And I think it's just a reflection of what is going on in terms of the AI economy in each country, and then just how those company, uh, how those countries operate from a governance perspective. You know, we've always sort of picked on the Europeans because they've been very aggressive about going after tech companies and tech developments because they don't have as much of an economic base that they're contending with as the U.S. does. And I think that's why the U.S. by and large has been much lighter in terms of regulatory approach to these issues. Yeah. Uh, And it's not clear what the problems are that regulation is meant to solve. I'm sure there are problems. We'll we'll get into some of them uh, in a bit. Uh, But I I fear the EU is regulating based on what feels creepy and what was in the Financial Times most recently. But it will be a major drag on AI once they start making clear what they want to regulate, is my guess. I'll yeah. offer the, the following thought. It's quite right to wonder what the regulatory thing is. The one situation I've sort of seen is is a kind of blame the AI approach to something going wrong, say a, a crash of a car, where somebody uses that as a way of trying to avoid liability that they might otherwise have. And I think that's probably the most salient place for regulation or for that matter, the development of statutory or or common law in the U.S. kinds of things is going to come because the people tend to, to the extent that people tend to treat the AI or have suggested that the AI did it and it's autonomous and I'm not responsible for its fuck up. Yeah, although I don't know how much people really, you know, if Tesla crashes, you can say, oh, it was the AI, but it's still a Tesla crash and Tesla owns it. That's right, but more obscure. For example, I read a case about a a seeming misdiagnosis that was AI-aided, in which Uh, the doctor said it was reasonable of him to rely on the AI assistance to make the mistake. And, and, you know, there's some plausibility, actually, to that if we think AI is useful. But it was wrong in this instance with obvious adverse consequences for the, you know, patient. And yeah. um, I, I'm not really sure how to deal with that, actually. But that's- I, I'm, I'm with you because the AI is probably recapitulating mistakes that would have been made by human doctors if you uh, gave it, if you got the AI out of the loop. Well, it's interesting because this is the issue because the financial system has been using AI probably longer than most other systems. And there's been a lot of angst amongst the, the regulatory bodies about AI, you know, making like lending decisions and stuff like that. And what we've discovered is that the regulatory system just can't seem to get its arms around 
around a framework that would allow for them to create a regulatory system, at least in the United States, that would be kind of in line with how we do regulation here, which is really, you know, putting it in the, the decision making in the domain experts inside of the system. And the fact is, they're just, A, there aren't enough people. And so you have to kind of spend a lot of energy. And I'm a little concerned that in the United States, we're going to lean a little closer to the EU model versus the Chinese model, right? Yeah. The Chinese model is a little more, you know, let the market do what it does. Here's some guardrails. The, the EU system is much more prescriptive. And that's a little worrying from, from my perspective. If you talk to people at DOD who actually deploy weapon systems and swarms of AI-driven drones and the like... I think they've already given up on the idea that they're going to control this, that there's going to be a human in the loop. To put a human in the loop is like saying, we just want to slow everything down. And if you're actually competing with somebody else who takes a human out of the loop, you're going to lose. So my guess is we're going to end up trusting the AI and the idea of putting a human in the loop is a stopgap at best. So, Well, I mean, a lot of conversations across the world right now focus on model evaluation. And you see that in the Chinese example in particular, right? They're talking about, okay, show us your AI model, you know, show us, et cetera, et cetera. And that is going to become incredibly challenging as these new generations of AIs that have been developed over the last few years come out where they're black boxes. There is no explainability to them. It is results oriented only. And that is, so the thing I worry about is we're going to see, you know, certain federal agencies, certain legislators write, you know, in essence, write prescriptive laws for how AI operates operated, you know, five years ago, and all of a sudden, there's going to be a whole category of AI that they're not even going to know how to yeah, handle. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the point. So you characterized AI as recapitulating what the human doctor would do. But the reality is, is that at the forefronts of AI right now, the AI does things in ways that are different from, sometimes and better, better than, and inexplicable too. I was reading another study about AI's um, ability to diagnose, I think it was schizophrenia, and it is more successful at doing that than human doctors are and in predicting bad results. But human doctors, human psychiatrists can't tell you what it is that the AI is doing or how it's doing it. And the yeah. same is probably exactly. going to be true in everything from military targeting to financial uh, regulation. And so if we want to, you know, it's not just human in the loop, it's will we demand that AI be deterministic in its nature yeah. and not um, heuristic, I guess, is the opposite. Well, Paul, you have just said my favorite word, um, determinism, actually, and that until we get more people with STEM experience in these various you know, discussions and people can actually explain and, and understand how these systems work, that determinism is actually a friend of ours. So I am a skeptic about the idea that lack of explainability is an inherent uh, feature of AI. It, it has never entirely made sense to me that you couldn't have the AI run a self-diagnostic and say, here are the elements that had the biggest impact on my decision-making. Yeah. So Stuart, just I'll, I'll throw out, I've been in AI for 30 years, like all the way back to when we needed like three supercomputers to get it to like do what our phones do, yeah. you know, every second of every day. And let me tell you, the if you took a very robust, very well-organized AI, and you call that work unit A. So that is some amount of work that it takes to take a decision. The self-diagnostic to go in, understand itself well enough to then take that data, that math out, then translate it back into something like a human is, would be able to understand. You're talking 50 to 150 times as kind of a, an order of magnitude view of how much extra work it would be, which would make it incredibly cost prohibitive and, and, and frankly, okay. sure. You, and then you had no way of auditing it because you would have no way to see it. And so this is where, you know, I'm, I have a feeling we're going to talk about um, machine learning data systems here in a minute. And this is, this feeds right into that. Yeah. All right. So yeah. I'm going to have to, maybe I'll have to accept this. Then you need a system that it assesses the evaluation system. Right. Yeah. So, and, and my other problem with this is the one thing people feel like they can evaluate is they run this against their favorite oppressed group and say, oh, look, my oppressed group didn't do as well as somebody else, my favorite oppressor group. And uh, therefore, the results have to be jiggered in order to produce uh, more equity in the system. And that's really just saying I would like, in, in many cases, I'd like to adjust reality so that it meets my ideological requirements. And I fear that will be the temptation. Instead of explainability, they will just ask for correctness. 
I, I would say, given the current political climate, the desire to adjust reality to fit my ideological requirements is an epidemic across the political <laughs> class, and it touches every party and faction. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. All right, well, so we're going to come back to this. But first, Paul, duck, duck, go. Is it duck, duck, gone? Well, you know, I, I speak to this as a devotee of duck, duck, go. I transitioned to it many, many years ago precisely because it advertised that it would not track me in the same way that Google does when I do a search on it. But now we find that in addition to you know, the inevitable um, technical limitations on DuckDuckGo that we all knew about that sometimes meant that it couldn't guarantee you complete uh, anonymity in the search to third-party application. They had a, a side agreement with Microsoft in which they were transferring you know, much of your search engine data to Microsoft for its analytics. I and, thought it was actually m just the browser data. So they well, have the no, DuckDuckGo no, the, browser. The, well, the search, they search through the browser. So my understanding is the, it's the browser searches. But either way, it's a complete negation of their very theme of existence, right? We are the good pro-privacy guys, <clears throat> you know, who will not sell your searches, will not sell your browser. And turns out they are. Yep. In fact, I mean, the, the best part of it was they always had on their website a caveat that said, basically, we're not perfect. We can't guarantee that third-party applications on websites you visit won't harvest you. We, we do our best. And they now still have that. And it says, uh, we cannot guarantee against that, comma, and we uh, share some information pursuant to contractual obligations with Microsoft. They just added that to the website. And I'm like, this, what have you been doing all this time? Why yeah. have I trusted you? Yep. It's there it is. Very, very uh, I, I'm surprised Microsoft is taking almost no heat uh, and, and uh, DuckDuckGo is taking oh, a lot. Absolutely. I, I mean, I don't get it. I mean, Microsoft is the, I mean, they're not the bad actor here, but Microsoft likes to position itself as uber privacy and better than Google and better than Apple. And that, I don't know. That's <laughs> Microsoft's reward for not taking the privacy high ground like DuckDuckGo did. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah maybe I that's mean, it. You're right. Uh, if, if it had been Apple that had been paying them to uh, pass on advertising information, it would be a bigger scandal. You're probably right. All right, let's go back to AI because there are a couple of studies out that I thought, well, there's stories. One, one's a story. The other's a study. One that says if you really want to bias a machine learning system, it matters what order you present the data in. Uh, I think of this like opening your negotiations by stating a price that is way above what you imagine you could get as a way of sort of pulling your negotiator in your direction. And it, it looks as though the machine learning system, as it's trying to figure out, you know, what do I care about here, assigns a lot more weight to the first few examples than to the last few examples that it gets. So that if you give them a biased sample that is really biased at the start, uh, it'll stay biased throughout the further refinement of their machine learning. Is that basically what we're hearing, Sultan? Yeah. The example I give is it really matters what textbook you put in the hands of a first grader far more than it matters what hands you, what textbook you put in the hands of a 27-year-old, okay. right? Because there's an open field and it sets a baseline of behavior. The other thing is the vast majority of what we call AI, these lightweight machine learning algorithms, they don't go through as quite a rigorous training program as you know some of the more intense stuff. So a Tesla autopilot AI will be far more robust and have far more cycles of learning that are reinforced against. So even if it does start off, and it, it'll drift towards you know that bell curve place at what they want it to be. A lot of other ones, and I, I highlight especially younger companies in healthcare and finance, both are pretty bad at that generally. Uh, so yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of this. So the, yeah. there are a lot of people who are assembling their data sets, and that's the most expensive thing you can do. 80 cents on the dollar of any AI company for the last decade has been data. 80 cents of the dollar. Wow. Okay. So if you are cheap on that or not even reflective about how you're going to serve it, you could actually tilt your results. 
Absolutely. And in fact, a lot of companies make a lot of hay out of being data providers for artificial intelligence companies. And the thing that doesn't happen is the organization grabs that data and then actually has a human go in and look at it. Like, hey, is this good data? Like, let's say I'm building a, a lending platform. Am I looking at good lending data? Am I looking at data that isn't already biased? You know, so if you're looking at lending data in the United States, the raw data is fundamentally biased because, you know, it shows more white people than there are as a percentage of the population. It's just the nature of home ownership in the country, right? But if you take that same data and then use it to start evaluating credit scores, all of a sudden you will build in discretionary bias against people who don't own homes. Well, guess what you've just done? You've just created bias against people who aren't white and aren't male, right? That is, and that has been a big problem in certain circles. And so, you know, we have to think about it as a holistic discussion here. And, you know, these two articles are, I call them duh articles. Like any, we've known this for a long time. This, the problem is, is people aren't putting any energy into solving it. So let me push back on this a little. If I have a relatively lightweight database and the cost, I've sunk the cost of getting all the data, why don't I just run the machine learning algorithm a second time against the data in the opposite direction? Start at the back of the line and come to the front and see how much difference it makes. So it's interesting. The, there, there's a name for that. Vast backwards. Backpropagation. And so, and and that's actually for a long time that was considered kind of state of the art back in the '90s. Back, you know, it would it, you would literally take the data, run it through multiple times, look at the models you've got, and then do an analysis against those models. Right. So you put some randomization in there. You'd put some random data in there. You'd do a bunch of other stuff. Generally speaking, we're finding that all of that is is kind of pointless, and that what you really need to do is be very highly curated on the data. And so there's a step missing in this discussion. So if I go and I grab all the home mortgage data from Humda, which is a a data source that every, you know, kind of financial services company uses, if I don't can map that relative to census data, it will come out biased no matter which direction you take it. And so I reframe your question, Stuart, just a little bit to say is they aren't using all the data. They're using the convenient, easy to absorb subset and aren't actually thinking holistically about the problem they're trying to solve. So what about... Synthetic data. There's a lot of enthusiasm for synthetic data, which is making up people uh, about whom you collect the data so that you can make decisions. Um, And I'm of two minds about that. I can see circumstances where you just don't have enough of, of people who fall into a particular category. And so you want to make sure that the machine has seen enough of those people. You just add a few more. And with the same outcomes. But you can, once you're making up data, again, you can construct a world that fits your ideological biases and just impose it on the machine, and then the machine will impose it back on us. So here is the example I give. Since the beginning of time from the internet perspective, i.e. like 1973, the computer science community has been trying to perfect the creation of a random number generator. And it is incredibly important in everything from encryption to a variety of other things. To this day, I get emails almost daily with people finding mathematical flaws to the random number generators that we use on a daily basis to encrypt things, to do everything and its brother. Okay, If we can't figure out how to have a computer randomly say zero or one, I am not confident having it spit out, you know, a credit report for someone or a who doesn't uh, exist or something, right? I am not convinced it was done. I have yet to see, and this is my one piece of advice for any startup or anyone in AI. I have yet to see a synthetic data generation platform that actually doesn't have inherent bias built directly into it, or some sort of a structural flaw that ends you up in a worse place than you were if you started. Okay. Well, that's, you know, I, and that would seem to be a bug. I suspect there are people for whom it's a feature. They say, you, you mean we can, exactly. we, we can put all these quota programs in it and no one will know? This is great. <laughs> that's exactly right. All right. So, oh, actually, let me ask, uh, while we're, uh, we'll finish the AI, uh, I was struck by the, there's a, the articles going around that suggest that drive, self-driving cars can be substantially improved, or at least that companies that had a 10-year uh, delay in getting started can catch up by using a variety of relatively new tools. And it sounds to me as though it's mostly looking at feedback from the user that they can use to identify and impose new self-driving algorithms that are going to catch up to the ones that Tesla has been using, that GM has been using. What is this supposed breakthrough and is it really working? 
Well, it's sort of an issue where it's easy to create more valuable interactions with your customers if you already have customers. And you already have customers who are driving normally and computers that already have sensor platforms. And so that's where a lot of these companies that have waited a while to get into self-driving are actually benefiting because they actually have a tremendous amount of data. And so even if it took them an extra 10 years to come into this, they've been collecting data that they can then organize and analyze, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing that's changed in the last few years is that the underlying tooling has evolved quite a bit. So 10, 15 years ago, when Tesla first got into this, they had to build a lot of stuff themselves. Right. They didn't have, you know, I, may, I make the joke when you go to the shop and they don't have a hammer, the first thing you got to do is make a hammer, right? And, and now, you know, they can just jump in. And so you look at what, you know, younger companies are doing. Um, they're just able to leverage on a bunch of that. But the biggest thing is this ability to already be connected to the users, already be connected to the data and, and having profile data built against that. So, you know, everybody got up in arms 10 years ago when a car insurance company Companies and the credit card payments infrastructure got together so they could track who was parking next to a bar, spending a bunch of money, and then getting in their car. And all of a sudden, they were noticing that they had you know higher costs associated with those customers. So guess what? Your car insurance went up. Right, mm-hmm. and that was like a decade ago. That exact flow of data has been going into the self-driving the self-driving infrastructure. And so organizations are able to use a much broader, much more varied, much you know, kind of more robustly interesting set of data. And these newer AIs are allowed to analyze it and say, oh, well, you know, these category of drivers are kind of going in a certain direction. We're going to behave in a certain way relative to that. Some of the older companies don't have access to that. I think GM is kind of on its back foot a little bit here. And to give you the actual numbers, Stuart, I looked it up. They're at a 15% market share here in the United States. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Down two and a half percent in the last eighteen months. So you know, even though the car market itself was actually going up in that time, so just a uh, just a so note. there is there is robust competition, which is why GM doesn't tell me that uh, if I'm a Trump voter, they don't want my business. Uh, yeah. Um, yes, yeah. I mean, they're they're. We I mean, can just always go to Tesla, Stuart. Yeah, yeah. There you go, Tesla. I'm, I'm waiting for you to tell me you've traded in your car for a Tesla, Stuart. I I have a Miata, as a matter of fact. But I I understand that uh, GM's Cruise is actually doing self-driving robo-taxi rides in San Francisco. So I'm going to be out there. I've signed up. We'll see if I get off the, the, the wait list. And Twitter, $150 million for basically saying, give us a, your phone number for security purposes so we can send you two-factor notifications. And then uh, saying, hey, we got all these phone numbers. We can use those for ads. That's it. It's that simple. If you don't tell people what you're going to use their phone numbers for, the FTC and the DOJ get mighty angry and want you to pay them $150 million. And that's what Twitter's doing. Well, and I can understand. Uh, it's easier to understand when you realize that Twitter has signed up for the GDPR safe harbor rules, which make it clear you have to express what the purposes that you're collecting the data for are. And in this case, when you say we're doing it for X, you can't use it for X plus Y. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, a real footfall on Twitter's part here. Yep. Okay. It's uh, only paid 150 million bucks, right? I mean, it, well, it's, it, it's, it's, it's Twitter. They don't have a lot of money. Their income from I, selling was much greater, right? Well, you know, Twitter's revenues are up to about $5 billion. I, I haven't looked at their uh, recent public reporting to figure out what their margins are. But, you know, I, I think when we talk about Twitter, it's important to keep them in a separate category from a yeah, economic strengths perspective to Meta or Microsoft or Alphabet. They're just in a completely different league, a minor league compared to those entities. Yeah. Their employees get to take home their pay mostly in virtue signaling, as far as I can see. All right. Let's do quick hits and, and updates. Uh, Matthew, Spain's prime minister says, I just don't understand how all of these people ended up getting malware on their phones. But it turns out that some of them, some of the politicians, we went to court and got orders and others, we just don't know. So we're going to have a big investigation. Is that more or less what's going on? Yeah, that's it. You know, it's a funny thing when your political opponents all wind up with malware on the phone and then your own court system, intelligent court system approved about, a, you know, third of them. It's uh, it's always a bit of an awkward conversation. Well, it's especially awkward when it turns out that you're also getting this malware on your yeah. phone. <laughs> yeah. So now, presumably, that's some other government doing it. But this is one investigation, the results of which I will be enthusiastic about uh, uh, watching for. Sultan, the Klobuchar antitrust 
bill, which was the one most likely to get through. She has uh, bipartisan support for it. It's basically saying there are some big platforms and we're going to regulate their self-preferencing. It's run into... I won't call it a buzzsaw, but it's wading through maple syrup at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, I mean, I, I agree that it has seen seemed like the thing most likely to cross the finish line, but I don't think that's happening. And I think they've completely misunderstood what providing cutout exceptions for telecommunications companies and certain payments companies does in terms of actually not solving the problem that the the base constituency actually wanted them to solve with this, right? So, but the, the fact that Visa is, is exempt from this and AT&T is exempt from this, really doesn't actually solve a lot of the problems. It could be. You know, I I understand why you do that. You say that wasn't my target and I've got all their lobbyists all over the hill bad-mouthing me. So why don't we make it clear that, you know, those are the FCC regulates the telcos. We will just leave it to the uh, FCC. But you're right. It, 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 cost them on the left and there was never a lot of enthusiasm on the right here so my guess is that plus the fact that we're practically at an election means it's not likely to to go anywhere I mean, especially as hot as DC is right now, and, uh, yeah. and you know, wandering around the hill last week, just watching the, the the kind of chatter factor relative to actual stuff getting done. I, I think we're seeing this kind of continued morass, and with the midterms, I just there's I think there's no whole lot that's going to happen on this one. Yeah. And the Commerce Department has put out its regs, uh, its final regs, uh, or uh, its interim final regs on cyber hacking tools. It looks as though they feel they pretty much got it right last time. They took comment, they delayed the, the starting date for it, and they acknowledge that they need to clarify a few things, but they think they can do those with FAQs. But I did not see a lot of changes in this reg. And so it's going to be a real pain in the neck for people who want to figure out how to comply with this, figuring out whether you're doing business with somebody who is controlled by a government that is not supposed to be getting these tools is really going to be painful. Yeah, it puts a lot of burden on American companies. And I, I mean, I can think of more than a few examples of organizations that do work, for example, with Israel or, or other parts of the Middle East or a couple of other players that are a little more forward in terms of you know, U.S. activity relative to China and, and, and Russian cyber-based activities, this is going to cost a little bit of compliance dollars. Yep. For an industry that is shaky to start. Uh, So yes, uh, I think you're exactly right, which means that that there'll be fewer exports of this and more people will turn more into government contractors uh, and the government contractors will probably be fine as long as they stick to Five Eyes and the like. I I think it's really saying if you're working with Five Eyes, you're fine. If you're doing anything else, then here's an extra 5% tax on paperwork. Yep. All right. Well, speaking of somebody who helps people through those paperwork uh, morasses, it's not not all bad. (laughs) Okay. All right. Matthew, uh, Paul, Sultan, this was terrific. Thank you. I I learned a lot uh, from all of you, except Paul. uh... I can't teach you anything, Stuart. Okay. To the audience, if you know somebody who ought to be working for the podcast, we are in the market, but we're closing that deadline soon. So send us CVs of people who might want to work part-time for the Cyberlaw podcast, especially doing the sound work, but there's substance as well. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 409 of the Cyberlaw podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe & Johnson. (music) 